Let's pray for another church in our community. Lord, this morning we want to lift up another church, a sister church in our community. We want to pray for Mineral Heights Baptist Church. Lord, I don't know the pastor or his family, Lord. I just want to, I know that you do, and we together want to lift them up and just ask you to bless them. I pray that they are enjoying you. I pray that they are walking with you as a family first, as a husband and wife. Lord, I pray that you are blessing them, that you are growing him in wisdom and that he's fueled by worship. Lord, I, I pray that he is... Uh, listening to other folks as he's leading and that they are um, leading your people well at Mineral Heights Baptist Church. We pray that you are blessing that church, Lord, that, the, that there are uh, people that are visiting, uh, that there are people that are being discipled and raised up, and that they are being uh, salty, bright, and aromatic through the equipping work of the church there. Lord, I just in, we together entrust them to you and are thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, we pray that you would guide these next few minutes, and uh, that we would bring you honor in the way we spend them. Uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the book of Job uh, for the next three months or so, and this morning, I just want to share two things at the beginning of our morning. I've been teaching through uh, Job on Wednesday nights. Neil and I, Neil Payne and I, have been teaching on Wednesday nights, and we are almost to the end of the book of Job with our youth and it wasn't long uh, after we got into the book of Job where Neil and I are kind of looking at each other like, are we bringing this, Neil's basically, are you bringing this to God's people on Sunday morning? And um, I, uh, the circumstances kind of, a few things factored together. Um, I have about 16 weeks before I go on sabbatical, and we've spent about 16 weeks in Job on Wednesday nights, and it just, it fit time-wise. That wasn't a major factor. Probably what was the biggest factor was uh, there are so many misconceptions with the book of Job and realizing what a crazy delight it's been for us with the youth. We're like, man, this is a no-brainer. I think it's the right thing to do. And um, I'm excited about our journey. I'm going to address some of these misconceptions uh, here in a moment. But let me share with you what we're doing this morning Christy and the kids and I go to a symphony from time to time. We're not like big, like uh, every time the doors are open or anything like that. Um, I don't know the background behind all the symphonies and the orchestra pieces and all that. Um, but when I do, let me, let me share this with you. When there's a conductor that takes the time to explain to you the context of a piece of music you're about to hear, it changes how you listen. And it changes how it's enjoyed. It, it adds so much where you go, ah, okay, well, that's the context. And that's, the, that's what was going on in space and time around the writing and the hearing of that piece. And, and here are some things that he's drawing out in that piece that you can listen for. When you have a conductor that takes the time to do that, it changes the experience altogether. That's what this morning is. We're not even really getting, getting into the music yet this morning. We start hearing the music next week. But this morning is the explanation, in some ways, an investment in these next uh, three months or so into this journey that we're making in the book of Job together. And I think it's going to be, hopefully, uh, a wise investment. Now, let me, um, let me just kind of tell you also, it's probably going to be a little more teaching this morning than preaching. Uh, but I, I found that really effective, life-altering preaching is girded up with good teaching. So 
Uh, I'm okay with spending a morning uh, sort of teaching some context for this beautiful piece of, of music that we're going to enjoy these next three months. So let me deal with some misconceptions first. Uh, first of all, here's, here's one that is a misconception, is that book, the book of uh, Job is nothing more than a book on suffering. That is a misconception. There, there are indeed the sights and sounds of suffering. Job was a, believed to be a king of the East. Um, uh, we had these sort of micro-kingdoms in that time, and we'll deal with the time frame next week. Um, but there, he was likely a king that lost everything. And when I say lost everything, he lost everything except what probably would have been the nicest things to lose was his wife. She was not the best wife at all. And she's still there. And, but he lost everything else. He lost his family. He lost his, his, the rest of his family. He lost his property. He lost his uh, servants. He lost his cattle, his livestock. Really, he lost everything. And it, it is definitely a lot of suffering that's going on in the book of Job. But what's better than, than just being a book on suffering and what, how it's so much more than a book on suffering, it's a book that reveals to us in some ways the character of our God. You're not just going to get a chance to peer into the life of Job. You're going to get a chance to peer into God. He's giving us access into how he moves. And that's why I'm telling you, it is going to blow, I think, blow some of that, at least that misconception away that's just a book about suffering. It is a book about so much more. It's a book about how our Father moves. It's a book about how he loves us and how he saves us. It's a book about how he grows us. It's a book about how he reveals himself to us. I think and I hope and pray that you will experience those, experience those things in the next few weeks. Another misconception about the book of Job is that it's hard to follow. Uh, the book of Job is, is, can be very difficult to follow. Um, things are very linear at the beginning and, and a little bit at the end. And then in the middle, they just kind of go all over the place. And if you're not um, really spending the time to figure out what's going on, especially chapters 4 through 37 are kind of no man's land. If you've read the book of Job, then that may have been where you stopped, somewhere in that section between chapters 4 through 37, or maybe the section that you just sort of fast-forwarded through. Uh, what I found in studying it, what Neil and I have found, is that it actually does follow a pattern in, in chapters 4 through 7. In that no man's land, it follows a pattern where we can sort of uh, glean some really important truths, even in that mix of dialogue that goes back and forth that a lot of people get lost in. It is hard, uh, it can seem hard to follow, but I think you'll find that it's not so much. A third misconception um, is that, that Job's friends are big dummies. If you've read the book of Job, you know that we've got some, some friends, and I will often use air quotes when I'm responding to these guys. Okay, Eliphaz, Bildad, uh, Zophar, and uh, there's one other guy, a young buck, named Elihu, that you'll meet also over the course of the journey in Job. These guys, really, they're often presented. In fact, I, I realize I referred to them last Wednesday night with our youth as stooges. And I refer to them as stooges because they just kind of bother me. They get on my nerves. But they're not stooges because they're dunces. Okay, these guys are not dumb at all. These guys, in fact, are brilliant. They are really almost cunning in the way they can use pieces of information that standing alone are true but they're applied in a situation and in a way that's not true. What's interesting about the book of Job, it's unique uh, among the books in our Bible, is that a sizable portion, I want you to hear me when I say this, 
A sizable portion of the book of Job is wrong. If that hits you funny, I want it to hit you funny. A sizable portion is dedicated, of the book of Job, is dedicated to people who are saying some true things but applying them in wrong ways. And there's something to be learned by what's not true just as much as there's something to be learned by what is true. So wisdom says we try and discern which is which. So thankfully, God gives some commentary later on in the book to give us some insight into the counsel of Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar that they did, in fact, give bad counsel. But let me tell you something. They're not dummies. They're actually very bright. And in some ways, I think you'll see over the course of our time as you get to know these guys, that they use pieces of information in almost a supernatural way. Their ability to manipulate it and massage it. And that's going to be a little hint with who I think these guys are connected to as we journey through the book together. A little hint, hint, wink, wink, wink. Okay? All right. The next thing, the next misconception. Job should be avoided because it's scary. And I say scary not because I'm making fun of it and making light of it. It actually is frightening. It is a frightening book, and I think that's why some folks don't want to touch it. Because if you read what goes down in chapters 1 and 2, you realize that God broaches the subject of Job to Satan, not the other way around. God points out Job as a great guy that Satan could test. Okay, it is a, I acknowledge it is a scary book. There are fates decided in the high court of heaven, and the, the people that aren't present in on that court meeting are the people who are being most influenced and most impacted by it. That's scary. I mean, let's, we can joke about it with a funny way to say scary, but it really is scary. And I get it. Folks don't want to touch Job because in some ways, studying Job and embracing the book of Job would be like praying for patience. And nobody's dumb enough to do that, right? Because if you pray for patience, it means that you have to have the circumstances that go along with the need for patience. And we don't want to pray for a terrible, difficult circumstances where we have to endure, do we? If we're wise, we might. But studying the book of Job, embracing the book of Job, might be like actually praying um, for patience. One of the things I think that you'll find is if you truly experience the God of Job, he won't be scary. He won't be someone that you want to hide from and want to run from. I was thinking about this when I was a kid and probably even on into my time in the Marine Corps. You know, you find yourself in different circumstances where um, they're asking for a volunteer for something, you know, in class. Yeah, Sean Ainsworth is shaking his head. Don't ever volunteer. I mean, don't ever do that. Greg Fields was notorious for volunteering for everything when he was in the Army. You put that on Greg. Of course he would. But the rest of us are smart enough to know you don't volunteer for anything, and uh, rarely. <laughs> but um, one, one of the things that I always thought was funny about those moments where someone's picking someone for a task, cleaning the latrine, Greg Fields was notorious at volunteering for. For real, he'll tell you that story. Is you want to be invisible in that moment. You don't want to call attention to yourself. You don't want to duck. You don't want to show any sort of physical movement like, okay, you don't want, as someone's panning the, 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 the possible volunteers there, volunteers, as they're, they're sort of scanning the candidates there, you don't want to show any facial expression. You don't even want to hardly breathe. And you're sitting, you're telling yourself, I'm invisible, I'm invisible, I'm invisible. He, he doesn't see me, he doesn't see me, he doesn't see me. Well, that's kind of what we do with the book of Job. Okay, pick Job, don't pick me. I'm invisible, I'm invisible, I'm invisible. God, don't do this to me, please. 
I think what you'll find over the course of our time in the book of Job is as, you, as we have together have a chance to experience the God of Job, that you won't run from him, you won't hide from him, you won't beg to be invisible. You'll want to experience him because it's that good. And the last misconception about the book of Job is that the book of Job never talks about Jesus. Now, I'll tell you this, that his name is never mentioned in the book of Job, but I think you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised, at least what I think I've found and our youth have found, is this a gospel book because Jesus is all over it. He is prefigured in this story in ways that will sneak up on you. I had an, a, an account um, a Wednesday night just a few weeks ago. It was the Easter week uh, where I was preparing the first group of dialogues, which I really I described to the youth as no man's land. I'm like, uh, it's, you know, just where you got to kind of keep going in order to get to the real prize of the finish. You know, so well, let's press on. And I taught the lesson and I read a psalm at the end of it and I couldn't hardly get through it. I was embarrassed because I was almost an ugly cry. And it was really because what snuck up on me was this view into the person and work of Christ that I did not anticipate. And I think you're going to find that Jesus is all over the pages and all over the story of the book of Job. He is prefigured in ways that will sneak up on you. I hope and pray will sneak up on you like it has me. Uh, Some of the things that you deal with whenever you're preparing to move into a book, and I've done this with every book that I've preached that I know of, John, uh, Ephesians, Hebrews, is you invest a Sunday or two in what we're doing right here, and you deal with things like author, uh, audience, occasion. If it's a letter, you know, write it. Well, what's the occasion for Paul to write a letter to Ephesus? You, de- you deal with those sort of matters because they make sense of, as I explained, the symphony. They help you understand the piece of music that you're spending time on when someone takes the time to do that. So next week, we're going to be looking at some things like author and date and uh, recipient and occasion. Uh, but this week, we're going to spend only, uh, our, the rest of our time on one thing, genre. Genre. Genre is a very important thing when it comes to studying a book. You need to know what kind of genre you're reading in order to read it well. It's going to determine how you read the book. For example, a book of poetry, you're not going to take real literally. You're not going to disassemble a book of poetry or a passage of poetry because in disassembling it, you do a damage. Uh, poetry should be emotive, so you let it be emotive, and you just sort of immerse yourself in it and climb into it. And a narrative, you're going to do very, you can disassemble a narrative. You can, or um, uh, something that's uh, uh, someone that's making an argument, you can disassemble and should disassemble a narrative. You're going to just sort of follow the storyline and watch the persons and the players. So determining the genre is very, very important to how you read the book. And you might, some of you might be hearing the term genre. Let me just kind of give you a sense of what genre is. There's genres of music. Most folks in here understand that. Uh, there's pop, you know, rock. There's, we have both kinds of music, country and western. You know that? You know, there's, there's all these different genres of music. There's genres of literature within our Bible. And some of those genres within our Bible are narratives, apocalyptic. Um, you can probably connect some books to these genres, songs, i.e. psalm, prophecy, parable, you know where most of our parables are. That's a genre of literature. Uh, gospel is a genre. Epistle, where we've been spending our time in Ephesians, that's a genre. And really, uh, the last two sort of connect to the book of Job. Both of them connect to the book, book of Job. Poetry and wisdom. Now, Job is a, is a piece of fine poetry. It's lost for us because it's poetic in Hebrew, 
And we're not reading it in Hebrew, so it's, it's difficult to make sense of the, the beauty of the poetry in there. Uh, one of the things that you'll find, or you may not find this, but I'll just share this with you now. Uh, as these people are arguing and deliberating and berating Job as these supposed friends, they're doing it in poetry. That's what I'm saying. They're not dunces. You have to have a command of the language and a command of thought in order to piece that together, unless they're rappers, maybe. And maybe rappers are brilliant, too. I don't know, I don't know any rappers. But they're actually berating him in, in poetry. It's a beautiful piece of poetry. And how, uh, whether or not something is poetry, as I, I mentioned a moment ago, determining the genre determines how you read it. Typically in poetry, as you read a piece of poetry, you don't take it too literally. Okay, it's... it's it's not so much about facts, it's more about emotion and what, what is brought out, the emotive response. But Job is different in that Job, we're going to find, is actually more wisdom literature than it is poetic. It's also poetic, but it is especially wisdom literature. Some people believe because it's poetry that Job is a made-up figure. I, I land on the place where he's a real figure because there's so many names and so many details provided in the book of Job that suggests that this is a real guy that lived in a real time and space. And that's the way I'm going to treat the book for the rest of our three months together. Believe that Job is primarily wisdom literature. It, it is a part of what, what I would call a trilogy of wisdom literature in our Bible. And that would be Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And where Job fits into the trilogy is important. I hope that most of our folks in here have read some or maybe all of those books. But let me just see if I can kind of help illustrate what I'm talking about. The book of Proverbs, and this, it's a treasured book, I think, for most. And uh, Proverbs chapter 7, I'd like for you to turn there. I want to show you something in the book of Proverbs. And I'm going to show you where Job fits in. And this, I'm telling you, it's delightful if you see it. Job, I will call, I mean, excuse me, Proverbs, I will call very linear. As you're turning there, Proverbs chapter 7, very linear. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. I like linear stuff. I like black and white stuff. I really do. I enjoy something that is, if you do this, I think that's a scientific method, isn't it? Or something along those lines. If you do this, then this will happen. It may not have nothing to do with scientific method. I don't know where that came from. Sometimes stuff's not in my nose, so it just pops in my head. Okay. Y'all are my practice service, so that's okay. I'll get that sorted out by next service. <laughs> and if anybody tells you in the second service that I tell them they're my favorite service, Y'all are actually my favorite service, so don't believe them. All right, so I love these linear things. If this happens, then this happens. If you follow my commandments, like a wise son listens to a wise father, then you will live. I like black and white linear. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. In the book of Proverbs, the adulteress or seductress is often presented as the, the way that you're not supposed to go. The path of the fool. Okay, Don't follow the seductress. 
because you're going to get yourself in a mess. Look at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. She's going to get you in a mess. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Black and white, man. I love it. If you listen to the seductress, you're going to find your life in ruins. Okay? And I thought maybe I would illustrate the book of Proverbs for you. Any excuse I have or any excuse to to use this thing right here. Let me illustrate the book of Proverbs for you. Okay. You see that? I'm trying to keep it really straight. That's about the best I can do. Okay, it's linear. I'm going to use this again in a minute. Okay, it's going to be really illuminating. Okay, here, here's, now here's Ecclesiastes. Okay, keep Proverbs right here in this hand. Linear, shh, tidy, black and white lines, bolded. Okay, we like that. A lot of us like that. Okay, now let's look at Ecclesiastes over here. Uh, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's a neighboring book. It's just uh, just a few pages past that, so it should be easy to find. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I think Greg mentioned this passage a few weeks ago when he preached. It's, it's a good one. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head. I mean, let's just import Proverbs in there. He's not going to be fooled by the seductress. He's not going to be fooled by the adulterous lady. He's not going to follow the path of the fool. But the fool walks in darkness. Mm-hmm. Shout sure did. He followed the, the seductress. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What? <laughs> I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Okay, so if the book of Proverbs is really nice and tidy and there's nice lines, bolded lines around it, and it's linear like that. Okay, here's, let me illustrate the book of Ecclesiastes for you. Right, I'm not going to shine it out there. You get the point. Proverbs, man, I like Proverbs because it's just so linear and it's tidy and it's so predictable. If you do this, then you will do this. But then Ecclesiastes just takes that and just blows it up. <laughs> wow, what just happened? But you know, they're both true. You need to understand that. There's not one that's more true than the other. They can both be and are both true. And you know where, that, where they play out so beautifully? In the last book of the trilogy, in Job. In Job, if you want to try and get a sense of where Job fits into the trilogy, kind of think of Job as a book that's the battlefield where the book of Proverbs, this linear book of Proverbs, does war with this circular and crazy book of Ecclesiastes. It's a beautiful book where those things do battle. I'm not sure who wins or if either wins. I know that they are both true, and I know that wisdom works to synthesize and distill them both. And the book of Job does that beautifully, and I'll show you some pictures of that later on as you, um, even this morning, I'll show you a few of those glimpses. Now, I want to show you, just, just share two more things with you this morning. First of all, the wisdom in Job, 
Okay, now we're going to get to the, to the content of Job without dealing with any scripture just yet. Wisdom in Job is a skill, okay? The book of Job is, is part of the wisdom trilogy. And wisdom in Job is a skill. That's the first thing I want to talk about. And wisdom in Job deals with people. That's the second thing. Okay, so here's the first thing. Wisdom in Job is a skill. I want you to think on this question as I um, unpack something with you, or for you briefly. And you can turn to Exodus chapter 31 while, while you think on this question. Exodus chapter 31. I want, to, I want you to consider this question as you're turning to Exodus chapter 31. Which job best illustrates wisdom? The college professor or the auto mechanic? Right, here's another comparison. Which job best illustrates wisdom? The historian or the electrician? Okay, just think on those, on those questions and those contrasts for a moment as I take you somewhere. Exodus chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. What I want to show you in these next couple minutes is that wisdom is a skill. Wisdom is a hands-on application of truth to real-life circumstances. It requires the synth- synth- synthesis of truth and real-life circumstances. Let me show you an example. 31, chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. You're going to meet a couple of guys here. One's named Bezalel, one's named Oholiab. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and have filled him with the Spirit of God. Okay? Just kind of keep your eye on Bezalel here. He's filled with the Spirit of God. With ability and intelligence. Now, the New American Standard and some other versions um, do a better job of translating the original Hebrew here. The original Hebrew is the word for wisdom. He's been given the Spirit of God and has been given wisdom. I don't know why on God's green earth, ESV, translated that out of here. Because it's wisdom. It's The word is wisdom. He's been given wisdom with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. Now, he's been given instructions for how to build the tabernacle. That's where we are in the book of Exodus. God's given that command to Moses. You're going to build a little mobile worship center where I'm going to dwell among my people, and here's how it's going to be built. And I'm going to put my spirit of wisdom on this guy named Bezalel. And behold, I've appointed with him another buddy, like his teammate, Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, and the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I've commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that's on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table, utensils, pure lampstand with all its utensils. And you get the point. All the little details of the tabernacle are going to be built by these guys who have the spirit of wisdom. See, Bezalel and Oholiab are given a spirit of wisdom, and the result there is that they make stuff. (laughs) They don't sit around and pontificate on stuff only. I'm sure there's some deliberation of how we're going to make this thing and how we're going to fashion these things. And the things that they're working with, I mean, we kind of get a sense of what the gold, lots of filigree. If you read these books in Exodus and Leviticus, filigree all over the place. I don't even know what that is, but it's all over the place. Acacia wood. I mean, they have these things that they're working with. I'm sure they're deliberating it. 
But the spirit of wisdom in these guys means that they're going to build something. There's going to be some skill applied in them making something. See, the spirit is the source of wisdom, first of all. If you didn't notice that, notice that. The spirit of God is the source of wisdom. And here's what's cool. Where he shows up, stuff's going to get made. Some of y'all might be thinking about some other place where the Spirit showed up and something was made. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And guess what? Bam, there's light. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And guess what? There was. Where the Spirit shows up, stuff is going to get made. And that's what's happening with these guys, Bezalel and Oholiab. They're making something. Okay, so let me go back to my questions. I'm not going to answer it just yet, but I want to refresh your memory on this question. If wisdom is best illustrated in a job, is it going to be a college professor or is it going to be an auto mechanic? Is it going to be a historian or is it going to be an electrician? Let me ask it another way. Let me get you to think on this maybe. Where would you go to get a degree in wisdom? If you're following my line of thought that wisdom is a skill, where would you go to get a degree? Would it be at university or would it be at the Votech school? I hope you're connecting the dots here and going, oh, it sounds like it's going to be at Votech school. That's going to be the place where people aren't pontificating on ideas, and they're not just massaging and manipulating ideas. They're actually working with real substrates. They're working with real stuff. Wisdom in our Bible, and not just in Job, but wisdom in our Bible is working knowledge. It's not a collection of ideas, but truth that walks out in circumstances in real life. If a job illustrated the biblical view of wisdom, it would be, I hope you were following that and anticipating that, it would be the auto mechanic. It would be the electrician that better illustrates the concept of biblical wisdom. It's not just working with data. It's working in real life with real cars, with real customers, with real grease, with real tight spaces engineered by Japanese engineers. And any of you ever worked on a Japanese car, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I spent years working on old Land Cruisers. It was like my primary driver was an old Land Cruiser, and I went through a lot of them, and I'd fix them up and sell them, and I bought a manual. I didn't even know how to change oil in my car, but I bought a manual. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. I was tired of paying people to do it. And I started figuring out, and I'm, there are occasions where you're working on the inside of an engine or something on a, on a Japanese land cruiser, and you're going, okay, Japanese engineers are pretty amazing. There's a reason those land cruisers are still running, okay, after long, you know, many, many decades. But how in the world did they anticipate a human being was going to be able to get down there and move that bolt, remove that bolt, or add a new one? Man, that takes wisdom to figure that kind of stuff out. It's real greasy situations, real-life circumstances where wisdom is applied. Man, I was thinking about the electrician. He has to deal with real wires in a real house that's being built by uh, or being directed by a real building guy that's saying, here's what's going to happen here, and by a real customer that's wanting to move into that real house with real lights that turn on and really hopes their house isn't going to burn down. It takes real wisdom. It's real life applied wisdom. And wisdom in Job plays out in real loss, I believe, of real families, real family members, real people with real names. It plays out in a guy who is virtually like a king losing all of it. He had real stuff 
real riches. He had been what the world would call blessed. Wisdom plays out also with tons of counsel coming from three very bright guys. They weren't dunces. And a fourth young fella giving lots of counsel that on first blush, if you're not any wiser, you might actually put on a little placard in your office that says, ah, it's wise. Not knowing that they gave bad counsel. These guys are quoted sometimes on these motivational, inspirational placards that you might buy at the Christian bookstore. Don't ever buy anything, any quotes from Elihu, Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. Let me just tell you, you that's dumb. Those guys were not giving good counsel, but at first blush, it looked really good. But then you realize it's applied in the wrong direction. Wisdom isn't just a bunch of notions. It's about how to decipher the rug being pulled out from under us while trusting the God who owns the rug and the God who allowed the pull. Man, wisdom is in real circumstances, in real life. Here's a little wee sermonette in the middle of this little context investment. A wee sermonette for you. If your faith experience, people of God, is about collecting data, biblical factoids, like you know who was married to who and who begot who and you know what miracle happened where and all this, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. You can win at Bible trivia and all that. That's really cool if you've got all those factoids gathered But if it's not connected to your very real Tuesday and your very real marriage and your very real job and your life and when you're driving in your car and what you're thinking about, what you're reading, what you're pulling up on the internet, if it's not connected to those things, if you have no grease on your hands in the connection, then you're not walking in wisdom. You know lots of data, but you don't know him. You can know a lot about the Bible and a lot about God and not actually experience God and walk in wisdom. I love this beautiful illustration of the Votech school. That travels for me. Man, it makes the wisdom like earthy. It makes it like real, like accessible for all of us. Like common and available with grease underneath our fingernails. I like that view of wisdom, and I want to walk in that kind of wisdom. Maybe, not, maybe knowing less, but obeying more. Man, that's wisdom. Okay, wisdom in Job deals with people. This is the second thing I want to share with you this morning. And I'm just going to develop in a few minutes, uh, if I can. I, want you like to, I would like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. I mentioned briefly what um, Oholiab and um, Bezalel used as substrates. Acacia, gold, filigree, stuff like that. Um, And I would suspect that these materials are pretty predictable. I don't work with filigree, so I can't vouch for that, but I'm betting that it's pretty predictable. I, I would suspect that gold is the kind of thing that people that work with gold know that it melts at a certain temperature and that it melts at a certain temperature pretty much every time. Okay, I'm sure that can be influenced by atmospheric conditions and stuff like that. But for the most part, I suspect that acacia wood is pretty predictable. That it'll bend to certain tolerances before it breaks and that you can trust that it can handle this kind of load. That I, 
the, the thing that, that, that Oholiab and Bezalel had that were easier than what we have is they had substrates that they were working with that were predictable. We, on the other hand, are charged with walking in wisdom that works with people. Okay, that's what's cool about the book of Job, is wisdom in Job works with people. And unlike bricks and gold and filigree and acacia, people are messy and complicated and confusing and frustrating. And we don't always melt at the same temperature. And we don't always take the same load before we break. We differ between people and even within persons, we differ from day to day. Whatever wisdom Bezalel and Oholiab needed, we need it tenfold because we're working with the most unpredictable substrate, people. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16. It's a familiar passage if you know the story of Solomon, but I share it with you. This is Solomon has prayed for wisdom. The Lord has blessed him with wisdom. And here is a beautiful application in this wisdom that's been given to him. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She broke that rule of sleeping with a baby. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Unpredictable substrates, right? Wow. Wow crazy. We're dealing with people. So the king, the wise king, the one who's been given the gift of wisdom says, the one says, this is my son and that, that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him, to de- put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king answered and said, I know who mama is. Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. She'd rather him live with someone else than cut him in half. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Man, Solomon's application of wisdom involved two messy things called people. (laughs) You've got to have some crazy wisdom to deal with those circumstances. It's fitting, too, that the lessons that we're going to be studying in these next few months as we deal with people, that God is building something else right now, it's not with brick or stone, but with people, and it's called the church. This tabernacle and temple is old news, and we are the living tabernacle and temple now. So this is a fitting thing for us to study together, wisdom in dealing with a substrate called people. Let me briefly, briefly just show you the levels of wisdom and how they play out in Job. Uh, just I want to kind of summarize this, and time is, a, is, is an issue for me now in the first service, and I want to be mindful of this, and um, so I want you to stay with me as I move pretty quickly in this last little thing before we have the supper. 
The book of Job gives us a special view of the levels of wisdom. Okay, let me see if I can summarize this briefly. There are three levels of wisdom. Priestly wisdom, kingly wisdom. Let me do it this way. Priestly wisdom, kingly wisdom, and prophet wisdom. Priestly wisdom is the kind of wisdom that a priest would need from do, to doing his job from day to day. Somebody comes and they say, hey, priest, I've done this. Uh, uh, I, I, need, I need to offer a sacrifice. And he knows exactly what the book of Leviticus says about that sin, that particular sin, and the, the, the certain type of sacrifice that should be made to atone for that sin. He knows exactly where to slice and dice that animal, put the entrails over here, put the fat, fatty portions over here, put the hair, teeth, and skin over here. He knows exactly what to do. He's like a butcher, slicing and dicing. He knows exactly how to deal with that animal, how much should be burned, what part can be consumed. He, know, he has special wisdom to apply to that situation where that person has sinned and needs atonement. Okay, that is a level of wisdom, and it is a true wisdom. Okay, the next level of wisdom is kingly wisdom. The king needs to know everything that the, the priest knows. The king needs to know how to slice and dice and what sort of sacrifices are going on, even though he's not doing that kind of stuff. He needs to know how the law works. A priest is an expert in the law, and the king needs to understand the law, but the king needs to be able to apply that law in very unique and difficult circumstances, places where things aren't black and white. Beautiful example, Solomon's situation. What would the priest have done with the two prostitutes or squabbling over which kid is, is theirs? He might have sent them off to make sacrifices for being prostitutes. <laughs> I, I think he would have been out of an answer for what do we do about this child? It took kingly wisdom to make a call in that situation and say, okay, psh, let's cut him in half, knowing that he wasn't going to do that. Okay, the third level of wisdom, that's first level of wisdom is priestly. It is wisdom, but it's the first level. The second level is kingly. He's got to understand the law, and he's got to be able to apply it in very unique and difficult circumstances. The third level of wisdom is prophet wisdom. The prophet needs to know the law and understand what sliced and diced, when and where. The prophet needs to know how to apply the law in unique and difficult circumstances like the king. But the prophet has something else. The prophet has another wisdom that the king doesn't always have and the priest doesn't always have. The prophet has a view into the divine counsel. What is going on in the high court of heaven? What God's plans and intentions are in this circumstance. The cool thing about the book of Job is you're going to see all three levels of wisdom. In the book of Job, you're going to hear likely what sounds real priestly from Elihu, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Real linear, slice and dice. You've done something wrong, man, I'm going to slice you up, buddy. You're the sacrifice. I'm going to cut you up. I'm going to burn you up. You get this real linear, priestly sort of wisdom that comes from the three friends and then the young buck. Okay? You also have the opportunity for kingly wisdom as you understand these circumstances where you're seeing. I drew the line there where, where this linear thing has a, a war with this thing that's circular. You realize there's more going on there. It's a very unique circumstance. But you also have prophet view in the book of Job. Prophet view is awesome. In the first two chapters, chapters one and two, we get to peer into the divine council and see that God is doing something here. God wasn't snoozing when all this stuff unfolded for Job. God was actually party to it. He brought Job's name up. We have a view into the divine counsel like the prophet does. We have prophet-level wisdom if we study the book of Job. It is a beautiful, 
beautiful book. It's easy to understand why it's considered wisdom literature because it's a unique wisdom that comes from the book of Job. How do you think the book of Job might help us with a wisdom that deals with people? Well, let me just offer this briefly, and then we're going to have the supper. Parents, a lot of parents in here. You guys want to have wisdom with your, with your kids? Okay. Some of us move like priests. Our kids step out of line. Man, I know what sacrifice you need to make, and it's going to be your honey. Every time. You know what the law is, buddy, and it's time for a sacrifice. You, you stepped out of the law. You stepped out of the lines, and it's time to slice and dice. Bring me the paddle. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I didn't say that was unwise. That's priestly wisdom. But if that's applied in every circumstance, that's unwise. As parents, we might be helped by the book of Job as we realize, oh, there's kingly wisdom where we can step with what the priest has, but also what the king has. And we can step into that very same circumstance where that child stepped out of line and we can go, okay, let me consider the circumstances I don't see. Like, has this child had enough sleep? Has this child eaten well? I, I, I don't know why red dye just popped in my head. All, the, all that was connected to red dye, did he have a big bowl of red dye? <laughs> was he or she exposed to something that I don't even know about before I adopted them or fostered them? Do I need to take those things into consideration? Do I need to take their little personality into consideration? That's kingly wisdom, parents. Man, take what, the prophet, or take what the priest knows, but add to it kingly wisdom and go, oh, I need to move like a king here and understand that sometimes things are gray. Okay, but what the cool thing is is when you can really move to prophet level where you can move up there with the prophet and you can have a view into the divine council and go, Lord, show me. This is why you, as parents, our lives have to be bathed in prayer and parenting. Show me how to move with this child. Show me what you're doing with this young woman of faith, this daughter of the high king of heaven, who's a daughter of the high king of heaven before she's a daughter of mine. Show me what you're up to in her life. Give me prophet-level wisdom as I parent her. Man, do y'all see what's in store in Job? It's going to be a treat. We're going to learn some really good stuff in Job, stuff that we need. I'm looking forward to it. Lord, give us this kind of wisdom as we journey in Job. Let me pray, and then we'll distribute our elements. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning. We're thankful for some of the things that we had a chance to consider, some context, um, some genre, how to read the book of Job. We're thankful for this beautiful picture in my mind, a beautiful picture of wisdom, something that walks and works and moves God, I pray that we would be a wise people who are walking and working and moving. We love you, Lord. We trust you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's distribute the elements.